0: Hello and welcome to Inside Policing. I'm Anthony Bushfield and this is the podcast that gets behind the blue lights and sirens to take a closer look at the issues affecting the police. It's sometimes said that coercive control is the most dangerous type of domestic abuse, but it can be hard to spot and when you think you've spotted it, it can be even harder to prove. On the podcast today, I'm speaking to Jane Monckton-Smith. She's an author, professor in public protection and a former police officer. Jane, thanks for your time. Let's start by making sure we're all on the same page. How do we define coercive control?
1: Well, I've heard a lot of people say, and it's said all the time, well, coercive control is really complex and sometimes it's hidden and you can't find it you can't see it and the victims will try and hide it so this makes it impossible for us and all of those things are true however it is also quite easy to understand coercive control I try and explain it a lot of the time using just one sentence rather than try and bombard with all the complexities. All right, let's put the complexities of it to one side. We all know it's complex. Human behaviour is always complex. So let's just pull out some one-sentence explanations that a police officer in a chaotic situation can just draw from. The best one I ever heard was, coercive control is a pattern of behaviour designed to trap someone in a relationship. That's it, one sentence. Trap someone in a relationship. That's what this person is trying to do. That's their motivation. That also is the abuse, because being trapped or being held hostage, that's another, you know, it creates a hostage situation. Just cling on to those. Think of those. It will probably make it a lot easier to understand where the perpetrator's coming from. Why do they want to trap someone in the relationship? What do they want to do that for? Fact is, right, they do. They just do. So they're going to beat them into submission. They're going to take away their money so they can't escape. They're going to take away their resources. They're going to take away their families and their friends. They're going to take away their confidence, all because they want keep them in the relationship but that doesn't mean that keeping this person in the relationship is about love it's about control makes me feel better if I'm completely controlling someone and then you can apply that to other relationships so coercive control is the key model as well for honor-based violence because it's about control and challenge to control Everything is so consistent across all of these carers and people who need to be cared for and older people. You're trapping them into some kind of power relationship with you. You, as a controlling person, you might have three, four, five different relationships going on at the same time. You're going to be controlling in every single one of them because it's not the individual that you're necessarily... In love with. It's having this resource. Might be a domestic resource, an emotional one, a financial one, but it's generally speaking a resource you feel you're entitled to.
0: It's fascinating you say there could be several relationships at once and all of which are controlling. I wonder do they follow a set pattern? Is there a set pattern officers can look for or is it going to be different in each situation?
1: Coercive control is a repeating and constant pattern. So during that relationship, we have what's called the three C's. Control, challenge, consequence. Over and over and over again. So the control is in place through whatever tactics they use to impose control. The victim will challenge that control, maybe inadvertently, but the control is usually a set of unwritten rules. So they challenge it. As soon as there's a challenge, there are consequences. Now homicide is one of the consequences, but also so can being in a sulk, being in a mood or slapping someone or strangling someone. They're all consequences. So I think in understanding coercive control, let's have a look at, we've been called, clearly there was a challenge then. And we've been called because the consequences became visible to somebody else. We've got to manage that situation. You can let the victim know that the consequences could get worse. They may well know that already. And you can manage the consequences that are in front of you and manage the consequences of what might happen in the future because you were there. But in a nutshell, I think that's what's going on. That's the best way that we can understand it and help.
0: That 3C pattern is interesting and shows how deliberate these behaviours are. Perpetrators are choosing to act in this way. What do you think drives them to do that?
1: Different people will come to be controlling through different routes. Most of my work has said, okay you are controlling, I don't actually care how you got here. It's irrelevant to what I am now going to do because I'm now going to look at your behavioural patterns as somebody who is controlling. But a lot of research and work out there that other people have done is looking at why somebody would need so much control. Why do they need this, that they're going to abuse their partner? Sometimes it's because of antisocial personality disorder. They are overrepresented in this group, of course they are. For some people, it will be about dependence, dependence on the relationship for their social status or or whatever it is they need. Those are your two main, main groups, I'm simplifying. But then running like a seam of gold through those groups is societal messaging which says that there are hierarchies in relationships and women are not at the top of that hierarchy from a societal, cultural perspective. What I tend to do is identify controlling people. I don't bother myself with how they got there because from my perspective, we're here. It's like saying, you know, what makes a psychopath? Well, we got one here. Let's not worry too much about how he got here. For me, that's someone else's job. (laughs) So I don't want to sit there and look at this controlling person and think to myself, did you witness domestic abuse? Did you have some form of instability? Did you lose a parent? It doesn't make any difference to me, harsh as that might sound. I'm far more concerned that we've got controlling people. I think we need something that's very important. We need programs, rehabilitation or, you know, perpetrator programs or whatever that focus on why have you got control issues? Why do you need so much control? That's not really where a lot of our programs are right now. And I think that's where they need to go. And it's in developing that work that maybe you track what made these people need so much control and feel so entitled to so much control.
0: That societal issue does focus the mind a bit. How much of this can we trace back to societal issues?
1: So a man can go into a relationship with all this social messaging, thinking, well, I'm in charge here. That's how it's supposed to be. Even if they're not a controlling person, They might feel even that there's some pressure on them to be a bit controlling. So if you put all of that messaging in, especially, you know, going back a bit where men were expected to be in control, the ones who were controlling for other reasons were made invisible because everybody was doing it. That hasn't gone away. That hasn't gone away. You do have this cultural messaging, whether you like it or not. I mean, I'm not standing here saying this is a feminist message. This is just social science. This is what social science says. They do have this feeling they're entitled to the relationship and to the hierarchies within that relationship. And of course, the biggest trigger for a homicide across the world is separation so you've been trapped in this relationship that's what they're doing they're making sure they trap you and then you say well i'm going i'm off i'm breaking out and that's when the homicides happen because how dare you i'm entitled to have you in this relationship until i release you that's the basic psychology
0: Let's talk more about victims then. You've written in your book about a time when you attend a domestic abuse call and the victim refused to get into an ambulance. Your sergeant said she was acting irrationally because that had been his experience of domestic abuse at the time. So let me be devil's advocate then and put that view to you. Why do the victims not just leave? Isn't it irrational to stay? We
1: label that victim-blaming now, don't we? And there's quite a conversation around victim blaming. And because we've started talking about it, we can see it much more clearly now. And I think domestic abuse victims in particular are seen as being their own worst enemy. So why... Don't you leave? I wouldn't allow that to happen to me. I'd never put up with that. You've got all this common sense approach. And I get that as well, because we all look in and think, you should get out of that, or you should do this, or you should do that. So because it doesn't look as if what they're doing is common sense, and it must be nonsense. It must be that they are just reckless or, or stupid or we don't understand what it is they're doing, why they won't behave in the way that we think they should. But I think that now with the language of coercive control and looking at that person and thinking instead, why aren't you leaving? Okay, I'm going to ask the same question, but let's say, well, what's stopping you? And let's answer that question properly. What is stopping you? Because you're trapped. Because you're absolutely trapped. So when I'm talking to police officers, especially about how to think about somebody who's very challenging in front of them, people don't usually behave irrationally. People usually behave in a way that is in their own best interests. So think of it like that. If they won't leave... Why is it in their best interest to stay? So we always ask the what would happen if questions rather than the way that we have tended to ask questions in the past. So if you say to somebody, what would happen if you got in the ambulance then? What would happen if you left? Get them to answer it for you. Get them to tell you what the consequences of leaving, of challenging, of standing up to this person are going to be. Because there will be consequences, we know that. They might not be homicide, but there will be consequences. So instead of, you know, that lady who wouldn't get in the ambulance, you know, if I'd have just said to her, what would happen if you got in the ambulance then? You know, what were you scared of? And You know, if she says, well, I'll get another beating, or I'll get this, or I'll get that, then her behaviour is not irrational, it's not stupid, it's entirely logical. And that was a very long way (laughs) of me saying, I think we should look at domestic abuse victims... As a logical rather than a illogical, make it logical for yourself. It won't take you five minutes. It won't take you five minutes if you use the what would happen if questions.
0: There are these stereotypes all over the world. And I was reading a report from the UN recently, which said still in 2023, there is a stereotype that women are more irrational than men. How present is that in this country and how harmful is it to how we support victims of the?
1: It's really difficult to have the gender conversation, but we can't ignore it. Yes, the way women are perceived is never really good for them. And because throughout history, really, we've looked at women who get beaten time and time and time again and keep going back. And that's our picture of the domestic abuse victim. We don't understand what they're thinking because we never really look at the perpetrator in a forensic way and think you're different to other men actually you are different in what ways are you different why do we have to look at them as husbands and lovers and boyfriends i don't anymore I look at a domestic abuser and that's what I see. You are a controlling person. And if you are a controlling person, this is what comes with you. It doesn't matter whether they're a husband or boyfriend, that just makes an excuse for them. And that means they must care. They must be loving. It must be her because she's clearly irrational. And he's like, oh, I'm so frustrated. What am I going to do? Of course, he's lost his temper. You know, all of that just has to go. It has to go. It's got no evidence to support it. All it's got is the way we perceive through this really distorted lens when we look at it. Now we've got to go into hierarchy. So if we go into hierarchies, they used to stratify homicide by treason, petty treason, Murder. Those are your three top offences. So treason is killing the king. Petty treason is killing somebody who's above you in the social hierarchy. Murder is killing somebody. Women used to be charged with petty treason if they killed their husbands. So that says huge amounts without me having to argue why it doesn't work for women. Women cannot justify killing their husbands. Some of it's explicitly written into our legislation, but some of it is covertly sitting around in there, just bubbling. We've just had the Wade report. Claire Wade, barrister, has looked at sentencing in domestic homicides, and she specifically looked at the disparities between women who kill their husbands and men who kill their wives. I've worked on some homicide cases, especially recently, I think I've done four or five where women have killed their male partners. I can't understand why those women got the sentences they did. The only thing that can justify the sentences that those women were given in the context and circumstances that they committed those crimes is bias. Much harsher sentencing Let's turn it around. Let's just look at this forensically. Let's look at the facts. Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the research, see what's being said about the type of people that commit these homicides and learn from that.
0: I read an interview you did a couple of years ago where you speak about the power dynamic of a court trial and it's very much in court who provides the best argument. And the point you make will resonate, I'm sure, with many officers that the victim will do anything to avoid arguing with the perpetrator. And on the flip side, the perpetrator will happily have these arguments.
1: I think one of the biggest problems for me that concerns me the most is that the adversarial system produces a battle between two sides. Okay, that's the system we've got. It doesn't produce the truth. There's probably not a lawyer in the land who would say, I disagree with that. It doesn't produce the truth. So the dominant narrative, whoever wins, that's now our official historical record of what happened. And it's probably got nothing to do with the actual truth. And we're trying to learn from that. Great that we've got domestic homicide reviews. I think they were absolutely brilliant. They came in about 2011 and they have revealed lots of the consistencies, the behavioural consistencies and the chronologies that precede these homicides. So our knowledge is building all the time, especially with these domestic homicide reviews. And I don't think there's any doubt anymore the crime of passion is the dominant narrative in these things.
0: Unpack the crime of passion for us because it suggests a person who acts in the heat of the moment rather than what we've been discussing so far which is patterns of behaviour.
1: So the myths are really really important especially in the adversarial system you've got two sides so each side has to pick something that the jury is going to find the most plausible. And the jury researchers said they love a plausible story above anything else. What's plausible is something that the whole of society believes to be true. And that's the crime of passion. So if they use that story, they know they're probably going to hit most of the jury who would think, oh, yeah, 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 that sounds right it makes me so frustrated and yet these are the same people that probably go home and watch a true crime documentary and say oh yeah look at all this behavioral science but we're not going to apply it to domestic abuse
0: yeah and you mentioned some of that research around jury trials there let's pick up a bit more on that because in policing we have the victim's code 12 rights and one of them is making a victim personal or an impact statement how effective is that in terms of understanding victims
1: The victim's voice is largely absent. We had a movement for quite a while that was saying things like, we have to listen to the victim, we have to give some credence to what they want. And in some ways, that has been very difficult for the police because it gets, not by the police, but societally misinterpreted that you are in some way empowering this victim by listening to them. Now, I do need to explain myself there. Yes, we should always listen to victims. Now, most of the work that I've done has come from listening to victims, because perpetrators aren't going to tell me about their patterns. It's going to come from the victims, it's going to come from the families. But the thing about this that really, really concerns me is that if somebody is being controlled and they are talking to you in a situation of crisis, is that their voice? Or is that the person's voice who's controlling them? We need to be very, very careful there. If a victim is saying, please don't arrest him because, whose voice is that? Just because that voice is coming out of the victim's mouth I'm always very concerned that it's the controlled voice. And of course, the perpetrator doesn't want to get arrested. And of course, the victim doesn't want him to get arrested because they're frightened of what the consequences of that are going to be. But to just apply this blanket, we must listen to victims, know when the victim's actually speaking. And know when the perpetrator is speaking through them. If somebody's saying something that is not in their own best interests, you can guarantee that a lot of the time it's not them that's saying it.
0: Let me pick up on that because that can be very frustrating for officers, can't it? When you're dealing with a repeat victim and they are so fearful, they won't tell us what's happened, they will refuse to cooperate. How can we get around that?
1: It's just very difficult They lose sympathy for the victim, but what they need to focus on is the offence that's happened in front of them, rather than whether they have sympathy for the victim or not. They don't need to have sympathy for the victim to recognise an offence. Of course, it helps much more if you feel sympathetic to the plight of the victim. But just because you don't feel sympathetic towards them doesn't mean to say they're not A victim. It's like going to GPs. They probably go to a GP 30 or 40 times and think about disclosing abuse, but don't. Because the consequences of disclosure are a bit frightening. Because they might find out. And what would the consequences of that be? But if the police are there all the time and nothing ever happens, you're just teaching that perpetrator that society condones what you're doing. You can get away with it. They already feel entitled. You're just adding to that entitlement, see? And the victim thinks he's right. My abuser is right. He is more powerful than the system because it's playing out in front of me. And another thing that victims will do sometimes is they'll turn on the police. You'll get to a call and the victim will start attacking you as a police officer. You're probably sitting there thinking, hang on a minute. I was called here. I'm trying to help. I'm here to help you and you're attacking me. Perpetrators over there, nobody's paying any attention to them, really. This is now a conflict between the police and the victim. I always think, look, if somebody's attacking you, what's in it for them to attack you? They're getting brownie points. The consequences of you being there are getting less and less and less for that person because they are standing up to the police and sticking up and showing loyalty to the perpetrator. So when the police go, which this victim thinks inevitably they are going to, of course they are, and she's left on her own with him, see how I stood up for you? So it's far more sensible to attack the police if you're going to look at this as a cost-benefit analysis.
0: It's incredibly complex and there's so much for us to consider at these types of calls. Is there a way to make victims feel more comfortable to speak freely?
1: Talking to a victim in their own home, are you being recorded by some covert? Does the victim know that they might be being recorded? Does the victim suspect everything I say he seems to find out about? Really, we should be talking to victims in sanitised spaces with their handbag left outside because of the amount of ways that they can be recorded. Amount of victims. One particular case I can think of. She thought her husband was abroad. As far as she was concerned, he was. She was in the doctor's surgery and he texted her and said, what are you doing in the doctor's surgery? Been there for the last 39 minutes really terrified her, terrified her. Was she going to speak to that doctor then about her? No, no. Getting that narrative, you've got to think about those things. Don't just look at a victim and think, they're attacking me, they're lying, they're not behaving rationally. Why aren't they? Because everybody does. Everybody behaves rationally, basically, unless they're mentally ill. So don't just assume an abuse victim is being irrational. A whole host of stuff going on that you haven't maybe taken into consideration.
0: You mentioned the recording element, and it's interesting. We have seen an explosion in this tech, a lot of it perfectly legitimate, meaning we can monitor our home from anywhere in the world. You've got doorbells that have cameras and things like that. But this is being exploited by abusers, isn't it?
1: Coercive control and stalking, They go hand in hand. Stalking is a consequence of trying to get out of coercive control or challenge coercive control or is just part of the, I need to know as much as I can about this person. And technology has made that so easy. But other things like social media have made it okay to stalk someone like, if you were going on a date, your friends might say to you, have you Googled him? Have you checked up on him? As you looked at his Facebook? So everybody has this mindset now that it's acceptable, even sensible, to go out and check someone's history. We're sitting in that context now, aren't we? Where it's perfectly OK to research somebody. Did an interesting little piece of research here, one of my students, Asking students, do they cross the line between what they think is just ordinary research of a person and when does it tip into stalking and do you cross that line? And every single one of them said they crossed the line, knowing they had. It's normal now to put out your life The tracking and monitoring devices are so cheap and some of them are free and so available and sold to us through narratives of you need to keep an eye on your child to make sure your child is safe so they can develop these things. We see in a lot of cases use of FaceTime. So we've got victims who are asleep with FaceTime on so that their controlling partner can watch them all night and make sure there's nobody else coming into the room. They're using FaceTime when they're buying clothes to say whether they're allowed to buy it or not. When they're cooking their meals, they won't be interacting with the person. They're literally surveilling them. Literally surveilling them. And I think for young people, FaceTime is so normal. But it's not... The intrusion and the danger that I would recognise that to be and a lot of people would recognise it to be and little pens that are recording every single thing they say and those um, AirPods slipped in the back of children's rucksacks so that they can be tracked by an estranged partner. When people talk about stalking, they say, one, is there any stalking? Two, is there any cyber stalking? Yes. (laughs) I don't think we should be asking that question anymore. Do you? We just need to find it. It's not, is there cyber stalking? It's find the cyber stalking. It's so normal for people now. If you had a predator, a serial killer, they had to get access to their victim. And maybe, for example, they'd pose as a taxi driver or they are a taxi driver to get this victim into their car. It was hard for them. The whole of the internet has become this taxi that you just open the door and somebody gets in and they have access to you. Access that they never had before. I don't even know if that's a good analogy, but it's like... You wouldn't get into a stranger's car, you get into a taxi. We treat the internet as safe as a taxi when we should be looking at it as a stranger's car. It seems safe because all your friends are on it. So it's like you're getting into a car with all your friends who are already there. It's masked, all the danger is masked. I don't know how many people would say, oh, I'm going on the dark web tonight. Would they? Who wouldn't?
0: So I suppose with all this in mind, the tech, the control over victims, the fear that victims feel, all alongside the workload, the time pressure, the demands of policing, how hard is all of this for the front line to spot and then address coercive control?
1: The police have got a really, really difficult job here. They're under competing pressures, I think. If there is a crime happening in front of them, or they have witnessed a crime, I think they should act on that and do what they would do in any other situation. But knowing, and this is what the really difficult thing is for the police, when you go into any situation, just accept you've made it worse, just by being there. Okay? Not your fault. Not your fault. Somebody's called the police. You've turned up. The situation has been made worse. There is nothing you can do about that. Accept it. What you can do is knowing that this situation has been made worse. How can you help manage the consequences of that for the victim? So if you arrest, fine, that's your job. How can you make the consequences of that arrest, the easiest you can for the victim. That's the advice I would give to the police. They're between a rock and a hard place. If you get a non mole you're making it worse. If you don't get a non mole you're making it worse. Just accept any intervention that challenges a controlling person or takes some decision-making away from them there's going to be consequences.
0: That's a really stark message.
1: I have lots of conversations with police officers about this, and they say, well, we don't want to make it worse. You've already... It's worse. It's worse. You're there. You know about it. Social services are there. They've just made it worse as well. You know, the GP has said something. They've made it worse. You can't control that. But if you walk in knowing that's what's happening... Let's manage the consequences for the victim.
0: That's going to be difficult to hear from many officers who who want to shine a light on this and help.
1: It's really challenging. But I think most of policing is really challenging, isn't it? Really, really challenging. But if, like you say, if you shine a light on it and simplify it, maybe it'll be easier for police officers to make some of those really difficult decisions... Instead of standing in the dark thinking, oh, have I just made this worse? It doesn't look really bad to me. I want to make this decision. You know, make your decisions based on your training and your policies and your practice and what your supervisors say and what you know of the facts. And just accept whatever you do is going to have an impact. Manage the consequences of that impact
0: it is difficult for police to hear that because we join to protect people to keep people safe and so to think that by attending a call where someone has dialed 999 and asked for us that we're actually making it worse i mean you said it rocking a hard place does that constant feeling of we're getting nowhere here she's not going to leave she's not going to give the evidence we need to lock him up is there empathy fatigue because of that
1: oh gosh yes of course there is So you're on shift, it's Saturday night and you can practically guarantee you're going here and you're going there. So go there. But your job is not to ride in on a white horse and save that victim from this relationship. And if you can't do that or they won't let you do that, that you take it personally. We've got to get past that haven't we? We really do put in that responsibility on police officers that they've got to go in and save the situation. They can't do that. What they can do is manage the fallout, manage the crisis, and see if they can manage the consequences of what has happened. And then they've done their job. The consequences might be they saved that person's life.
0: That's really interesting and might help actually manage these things better, knowing and accepting the limitations of what we can do, which then I suppose does move on naturally to training. Now, there's a lot out there. How effective is it in the sort of end game of giving better support to the victims?
1: We've been training police officers to within an inch of their lives that they know about coercive control and they know about homicide prevention and how these people act. So we've got this really knowledgeable police officer who then hits the criminal justice system that hasn't got nearly that level of knowledge or understanding. And then that police officer knows, they look at the victim and they can't guarantee anything. They can't say, well, yes, definitely that we will prosecute this. Yes, definitely the judge is going to act on this breach of this non-mol. Yeah, definitely you'll know when this happens. None of it. We've been training police officers and that's absolutely brilliant. We need the whole system working from the same workbook. We haven't got that. We really haven't got that.
0: Why not, do you think?
1: We just did some research on near misses. So those cases of domestic abuse where professionals who we were talking to considered they had prevented a homicide. So it was all self-defined. They said to us whether they had thought they had prevented a homicide or not didn't come from us we looked at 120 cases and I agreed with every single one yeah I think you did prevent a homicide here I really do something we don't talk about very often and we talked to a lot of police officers but also nurses idfas, and all of them without exception said that what prevented the homicide was advocacy Every single one, even police officers. And police officers aren't advocates, generally speaking, are they? The way that I interpreted that was that police officers or other professionals felt that they had the freedom to make challenges on behalf of a victim. And I think that sometimes perhaps police officers don't feel they've got that freedom to make challenges, to make an argument, to stand up for somebody. Classic case, classic case, okay, especially for police officers. The CPS don't agree with me. (laughs) The CPS say we haven't got enough evidence to charge and this police officer's thinking, well, I really feel strongly about this. And I think we have got the evidence to charge. It's like those situations where you've got the policy. Policy's not bad. Might be misinterpreted by somebody It might need challenging by somebody. And I think it is creating that atmosphere where an individual police officer can say to the CPS, I'm challenging that decision. And I got the backup of my sergeant or I got the backup of my inspector. I'm not saying it's the wrong decision. How can we make it better? Have we interpreted the policy correctly? Is there anything else we can do. Now, that's not my pontification. This is what came out of that research.
0: That will resonate with many, I'm sure, but it's difficult, isn't it, to challenge someone, particularly someone more senior?
1: Yeah. And then you get the multi-agency approach. So you get multiple agendas around the table and you get multiple interpretations of multiple policies. That can be Very, very challenging. Very challenging. And if there's nobody leading on that, you know, like a Marac, who's leading on the Marac? One of the things that was said in this research was it's individuals that are making differences in these policies and processes. The policies and the processes weren't attacked, really which is unusual because they usually do get attacked, it was interpretation of policies and practices that was being attacked. And if somebody's misinterpreted something, like GDPR was one that came up a lot, somebody needs to be able to say, I think you've misinterpreted that without creating an argument between those two agencies. So, for example, in one case, it might be what we need to achieve here is getting new housing for this person out of area, maybe with some kind of anonymity. That would be the one thing that everybody agrees if that was achieved, half of our problems are now going to go away. That kind of shared agenda is what I mean. So something much, much more micro than your terms of reference for the meeting getting together. Now it might be that The IDVA wants that. The housing department are just saying, well, our policy doesn't allow for that, I'm afraid. Can the IDVA challenge the policy? And who's going to help them do that? I chair domestic homicide reviews. So sometimes you're the chair and you've got, let's say 10 agencies around the table. They've all got a different agenda. They've all got a desire at the very least to not be criticised, They've all got different personality. They've all got a different interpretation. Some of them will have very loud voices and some of them will not want to speak at all. So multi-agency is really, really hard to do. And maybe it is the way forward, but how do we get past 10 different policies, 10 different interpretations, 10 different agendas. How do we get past the social worker and the police officer arguing with each other or children's services coming in then and arguing with each other about what each other's agenda is? There's not a shared agenda in multi-agency working. It's almost an assumed shared agenda. We want the best for this victim, but Is that actually articulated that what all of these agencies together should be specifically achieving, breaking it down into social services need to achieve this? Can that be a shared agenda? That's not really happening at the moment. It's more, in my experience, that one agency trying to assert their agenda and almost saying... That's the law. We can't do anything about that. That's what we have to do. You don't understand our job. But if there was a shared, stated, explicit set of outcomes that everybody had a responsibility to try and achieve, maybe that would be easier. I'm not sure. Like you go to a Marrack, for example, and you've got a process-driven person running the Marrack and this isn't a criticism, who wants to tick the boxes because that's what they have to do for their job. What's the shared agenda there? Apparently, this comparison I made hasn't come from me, but when they were trying to prevent airline crashes, for example, they brought in a process where everybody had a responsibility to challenge the policy in the process because it could make a difference between a plane going down and a plane not going down. So they kind of have that, that if you challenge somebody above you even, they've got to listen. And, and you have a responsibility to do that. It's a different context, but the way that works is that a police officer should be able to say to the CPS, can we look at that again and not be shut down? An IDVA should be able to say to housing... Can we have a look at your policy? Let's just have a look at it because this is dangerous for my client. And that is what was happening a lot of the time in these near-miss cases. Otherwise, you're in the same position the victim's in. They can't challenge the control that's over them. You're just recreating it somewhere else. And the victim doesn't know what's available. You've got all of this multi-agency stuff going on in the background. The victim's not at the MARAC saying, what I need is this. Oh, I didn't know that there was a housing department. That's got to be the professionals who know what the policies and the processes and the organisations and what is potentially available for that victim to make sure they don't lose their life.
0: We talk about domestic abuse-related homicides in terms of a killing. Someone has killed another person. But you're doing a piece of work at the moment to look at domestic abuse-related suicides.
1: It's exactly the same chronology. The perpetrator, the person whose chronology or behavioural patterns we've been studying with regards to homicide, they're exactly the same as for a suicide, which is incredibly concerning as well in 2015, they changed the guidance for domestic homicide reviews to include domestic abuse related suicides. Certainly not all of them are being done at all. We're getting lots of them coming through now. The suicide of Jessica Laverack, the coroner made a direct causal link between the domestic abuse and the suicide. And that's kind of landmark. So we are moving forward with all of these deaths because we keep saying two women a week are losing their lives it's way more than that so you've got two women a week which is the official recognized statistic this is literally an estimate from some research that's been done between four and ten women a week taking their own lives and I'm also doing a piece of research which I have not published yet It's got like a little name, Hidden Homicides, it's called. So we are looking at sudden unexpected deaths with domestic abuse, coercive control, stalking in the history that follow the eight stages, but are not considered to be suspicious. Families think they're suspicious and sometimes police officers think they're suspicious. The system isn't getting into gear about it. We don't count those. Of course, we don't count those because we don't acknowledge them even. But the work that we've done, very difficult work trying to get a number, there's as many hidden homicides as there are homicides. So if you add them all together, the scale of the issue, it's more than we think it is. It's more than we're acknowledging.
0: The eight stages you mentioned there, this is the eight stage homicide timeline you outline in your book, In Control, Dangerous Relationships and How They End in Murder. And it helps look at the cases in a rational way and break down the stages. But I think sometimes in doing that, we can detach slightly from the end outcome, which is someone dying. Oh,
1: well, the costs of homicide and suicide. I mean, they're, they, they're not even just financial, are they? The, the cost to society is massive. I know, you know, police officers are under a huge amount of pressure to do a huge amount of different things all in one shift. And, but sometimes it's just step back. This person's trapped in this situation. They will be suffering consequences on a daily basis. Can we minimize the consequences to further our own agenda and to make them safe? I think that in a nutshell is what we're talking about. This person is facing consequences for challenging this controlling person every single day. And they phone the police largely because they want the crisis managed, not because they want to leave. The police come and they are actually brilliant at managing the crisis, but then they get fed up when there's a crisis every Saturday night or there's a rolling crisis all the time. Don't get fed up. Once you know what coercive control is and you see it for the first time, you never unsee it. You then can see it where it is. You can recognise it and identify it. The work that Professor Evan Stark did in talking about coercive control as a liberty crime that was landmark really to put it in that language which takes it away from the this is somebody with an anger management issue or is this is somebody who's a bit depressed although he wasn't the first person to talk about coercive control I mean that they've call it domestic terrorism or intimate terrorism it's all the same thing isn't it but he put it In a framework, I think, that removes some of that chaos and reveals the behavioural patterns and the motivations. And once we understand them, it's much more easy to understand the outcomes and what the victim is going through. It's what I've based all my work on, is that framework, the government has said that framework is the best framework for understanding Domestic abuse. There are arguments that there are different categories of domestic abuse, and there probably are. Different motivations, different contexts. The dominant, and definitely the most dangerous, is coercive control. I love the idea, which is strangely resisted by quite a lot of people, that not all men are domestic abusers. These domestic abusers that we're talking about are a type and we can identify them. I would have thought that, you know, everyone would be all over this. I'm thinking, yeah, if we can identify them, let's do that. Instead of this idea that domestic abuse is a problem between two people. And it's their dynamic that produces the abuse because they should never have got together in the first place. That's not what's happening at all. But what makes us think that abusing your partner is a private matter? Why do we think that? Because it's something we say all the time. But why do we think that? Because what we're actually saying is then, it's all right for men to hit their wives, really. We all know it. We all know how awkward they can be. The nags and... Why are we saying that's okay? Not
0: okay. Jane Moncton smith thank you. Guidance, support, additional training and toolkits to tackle all violence against women and girls offences is available on the College of Policing website. Jane Moncton smiths book In Control, Dangerous Relationships and How They End in Murder is available as an e-book in the National Police Library and that is free to all police officers and staff. You've been listening to Inside Policing the official College of Policing podcast with me Anthony Bushfield. Join us again soon for the next episode taking a closer look and say pleasing.